In the Christian calendar, today is Palm Sunday. It's a Sunday when we remember Jesus' entry into Jerusalem at the beginning of the week that we call Passion Week or Holy Week, the week that would culminate in the crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus said his followers had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Passover was the great festival that commemorated the exodus from Egypt. At Passover, the Jews remembered how God had delivered them from bondage and how he had redeemed them by the blood of the Passover lamb. For those who were privileged to celebrate Passover in the holy city, this was probably the most anticipated event in the year. They looked forward to getting together with family and friends and rejoicing as they remembered how God had rescued them from their oppressors. And now, Jesus, the one whom John the Baptist had described as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, now Jesus comes in to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. However, as he joined the joy-filled throngs, Jesus knew that before the week was out, all that joy would turn to sadness. All four of the Gospels tell us that as Jesus approached Jerusalem, he sent two of his disciples ahead of them to a village to get a, a donkey. And there they got the donkey put their clothing on the donkey, and Jesus sat on the donkey to enter the city of Jerusalem. We read that as they did so, many people took off their cloaks and spread them on the ground before Jesus. Others cut down palm branches and again laid them on the ground before him. And they shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As you read the accounts, it's obvious that Jesus had carefully orchestrated the way he was going to enter the city of Jerusalem. But why did he choose this particular mode of transport? Sitting on a donkey. What was he trying to convey by entering the city that way? To answer that question, we really need to turn the calendar back 500 years and go back to the time when the Jews were returning from exile when they were rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple you see in the 6th century before Christ Judah had fallen to the Babylonians the city was destroyed the temple was destroyed the people of God were taken into exile and for 70 years, they languished in captivity until the Persians conquered the Babylonians and reversed the deportation policy that the Babylonians had had. The Persians allowed all of the peoples from the captured nations to return to their homelands and to reestablish their traditional religions again. 
we actually have a written record of this. It's in a, a document called the Cyrus Cylinder, a clay cylinder that's now housed in the British Museum in London. If you visit the British Museum, this has to be one of the things you look for. The Cyrus Cylinder records how this Persian ruler, Cyrus the Great, established a policy whereby all of the nations that had been conquered were allowed to return to their homelands, and that, of course, included the Jews. Along with many other nations, they were allowed to return to their home and to reestablish their religion, which for them meant rebuild the temple in the city of Jerusalem. For the Jews, this was like a second exodus. As Moses had been sent by God to deliver them from Egypt, now God had allowed them to be freed from another captor, and they were allowed to return to their homeland. God had freed them from their enemies and allowed them to go back to rebuild their temple and reestablish their sacrifices. Even though the exile was a punishment of God, they'd been sent into exile because of their sin. God had now shown mercy, and he was restoring them to their homeland. It was at this time that a prophet by the name of Zechariah appeared on the scene. Zechariah was one of the last of the prophets of Israel. The book that records his prophecies is the second last book in our Old Testament today. And Zechariah reminded the people that despite all that had happened, God was still going to show them mercy. God still loved them and cared for them. And he was going to give them a fresh start. The temple would be rebuilt. The sacrificial system would be reinstituted. God's blessing would rest on Jerusalem once again. But Zechariah's vision was much larger than the return of Jewish exiles to their homeland. It was much greater than the rebuilding of the temple. He also saw a time when God's love and God's mercy would be shown on a much grander scale. When God would send a king, when he would bring war to an end, and he would establish a kingdom of righteousness and peace. And a kingdom of righteousness and peace, not just for Israel, but for all nations, for the entire world. He spoke of the coming of that king in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Here is what he wrote. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So wrote Zechariah. Fast forward 500 years. Now Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem, 
And how does he choose to do so? On a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus knows the scriptures. He's familiar with the prophecy of Zechariah. And he deliberately chooses to enter the city in the very manner that Zechariah had described. What was he saying by doing this? Well, surely he was saying, I am that king of whom Zechariah spoke. I am the one in whom God's plan for the salvation of humanity is coming together. I am the one who's going to bring a universal kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness and peace. It seems that many in the crowd recognized what Jesus was claiming by entering the city as they did, because we read that they spread their cloaks on the ground before him. Something was often done for royalty to spread the cloaks on the ground for them to walk on. We actually have an example of this in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 9, when an army officer by the name of Jehu was selected to be the king. And according to verse 13 of 2 Kings 9, when his fellow officers heard that Jehu was to become king, quote, they quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. They spread their cloaks on the ground to acknowledge that he who was their peer was now their king. Matthew also tells us that the crowd shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that expression, son of David, isn't just an indication of the genealogy of Jesus. It's a title. It's a title that goes back to a messianic promise found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God spoke to the prophet Nathan concerning David and David's offspring. Nathan conveyed the message that the Lord had given him to David, and he said this, The Lord said, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He was talking about the son of David. And now the crowds welcome Jesus into Jerusalem as the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. In the third gospel, Luke makes it even more explicit that when the crowds were welcoming Jesus, they welcomed him as king. In Luke, we read, the crowd said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. When Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem that first Palm Sunday, He did so as the fulfillment of God's promise to send a messianic king, one who would bring universal rule of righteousness and peace. They recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, but they had little understanding 
of how he would fulfill his messianic role. They hailed him as their king, but Jesus would not fulfill the expectations that they had of him as king. No doubt many of them assumed that if Jesus was the Messiah, he would liberate them from Rome, the great oppressor that they had to deal with in their day. Surely, if he was the king, he would raise an army and they would crush the hated Romans. And once again, Israel would enjoy freedom from external control. But what the crowds were expecting and what Jesus intended to do were poles apart. He had no intention of declaring war on Rome of delivering the Jews from the Roman oppressor as God had delivered Israel from the ancient Egyptians. He had no intention of raising an army and achieving rule by force of arms. He was going to bring salvation to his people, but he would do so not by military conquest, but by offering himself as a sacrifice sin. The way he would redeem his people was not through killing their enemies, but through dying at their hands. The victory he was going to win would not be won on a battlefield. It would be won on a Roman cross. So when Jesus came to Jerusalem at the beginning of Passion Week, he came in fulfillment of the prophecies of Zechariah. He came not as a military commander astride a war horse, but as the prophet predicted, he was gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt full of a donkey. That was Sunday. On Thursday of that week, Jesus would celebrate Passover with his disciples for the last time. After the meal, Jesus led his disciples out towards the Garden of Gethsemane, where he would be arrested, and ultimately that would lead to his crucifixion. On the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, he told his disciples that they were soon going to abandon him. When it came to the hour of trial, they were going to desert him. And once again, Jesus turned to the prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah 13, verse 7, we read these words. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. So said Zechariah. Matthew 26, 31 records that Jesus quoted a portion of that text as he reminded his disciples of the trial they were about to undergo and the fact that they were going to desert him. And so he says, this very night you will fall away on account of me. 
For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus, of course, saw himself as the shepherd whom God would strike. He saw his disciples as the sheep who would be scattered. And they all abandoned him after his arrest. Jesus knew that he had come to Jerusalem not to sit on a throne, but to hang on a cross. And he knew that this was God's will for him. Earlier, he had told his disciples as they were on their way towards Jerusalem that the Son of Man would be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, condemned to death, and turned over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Jesus knew what awaited him and that this was God's plan for him. The idea that God would strike the shepherd, that God would cause Jesus to suffer, may strike us as strange, may even strike us as offensive. But it's a thoroughly biblical concept. In Isaiah 53, the prophet says, we considered him, the suffering servant, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. And it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. You see, The crucifixion wasn't the result of some cosmic accident, some situation that somehow had gotten out of control and and God couldn't determine what was going to happen. Quite the contrary. God had sent his son specifically to go to the cross, to be the sin bearer, the one who would bear the consequences of our sin so that we might be freed from their guilt and we might be freed from their punishment. If there was ever anyone who did not deserve to be punished by God, it was surely Jesus. He lived a life of total obedience to his heavenly Father. He was righteous in all that he said and did. His life was beyond reproach. No one could criticize him for anything he did. Why then does God strike him. Why then does he receive the punishment for sin? The answer to that is found in John 10, 11, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus lays down his life not because of what he has done and sin for which he has to atone, He lays down his life for the sake of the sheep, for the sake of those who have wandered away from God, from those who have chosen to go their own way. way. He lays down his life for sheep like you and me. Jesus' death can well be seen as a punishment for sin, but most certainly not his sin. He bore the penalty for our sin when he died on the cross. I think that's expressed so beautifully in the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. You know the words, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin 
upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Jesus died on the cross. He did so for your sin and mine. He did it for our sake. He did it in our place. He suffered the consequences of our sin so that we might enjoy forgiveness, so that we might enjoy new life with him. But if our shepherd king willingly went to the cross for us and for our sin, how ought we to respond? What does he expect of us? In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. In other words, Jesus chose to follow the way of the cross. And he calls those who would follow him to also follow the way of the cross. What does it mean to take up the cross? It means to give up the control of your life. It means to hand the reins of your life over to someone else. You see, being a Christian is not just a hobby. It's not something you can do to fill in spare time that you can spend a couple of hours a week engaged in. Being a Christian is an entire reorientation of your life. Being a Christian means putting a sign on your life under new management. I'm now God's, and it's his will that I seek to follow. It's his righteousness I seek to pursue. This past week, I read a news report that I found rather disturbing. It seems that in Britain, funeral directors have gotten together to determine what are the songs that people most commonly request for their funerals. And according to the survey, the number one song request for funerals was Frank Sinatra's version of I Did It My Way. It seems that hymns no longer appear in the top five of the most commonly requested songs for funerals. The highest rated hymn was The Lord Is My Shepherd, which came down at number five. As I thought of that, it struck me that really that song, I Did It My Way, is a powerful expression of what drives many people's lives. They want to live as they choose to live and not by anybody else's expectations of them. They don't want to be governed by what anyone else says they ought or ought not to do. They want to do it their way. We might well describe that song, I think, as the anthem of secular humanity. The singer proudly proclaims, I acknowledge nothing greater than myself. I am my God, 
and I want to do God's will. The sentiments in that song could hardly be in sharper contrast than they are to the words of Jesus who said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give us life as a ransom for many. So we really have a choice. How do we want to live? Do we want to follow Jesus in the way of the cross? Or do we want to do it my way? And the surprising thing is that when we choose the way of the cross, we discover that instead of finding it an onerous burden that we have to labor under, the way of the cross is actually a way of freedom. It gives one a wonderful sense of fulfillment and of satisfaction. Paradoxically, the way of the cross enables us to become all that God intended us to be. And there's great joy in that. George Matheson, I think, expressed it very well in an old hymn when he wrote, Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conqueror be. Now, to be sure, there are sacrifices in the way of the cross. The way of the cross is a way of self-discipline. It requires us to lay aside anything that might come between us and God that might hinder our relationship to our Lord. There are sacrifices to be made in the way of the cross. But the rewards far outweigh any of the sacrifices. When I was a boy, one of my heroes was the 19th century missionary to Africa, David Livingston. David Livingston, of course, was known as a great explorer, as a medical missionary, as someone who fought against the slave trade. And he under, underwent a great deal of deprivation in order to follow his Lord in the way of the cross. But he wrote something about what the way of the cross it cost him. And I want to close by reading some of Livingston's testimony of what the way of the cross cost him. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice, which is simply acknowledging a great debt we owe to our God, which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own reward and healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny? It is emphatically no sacrifice. Rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, danger, foregoing the common conveniences of this life, these may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing 
compared with the glory that shall later be revealed in and through us. I never made a sacrifice. Of this we ought not to talk when we remember the great sacrifice which he made for us who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. Heavenly Father, in your great love for us, you sent your Son, Jesus, our Savior, to take our nature, to become one of us, and to suffer death on the cross. Father, grant that we, like him, may take up our cross and walk the path that you set before us. Free us from the self-centeredness that would keep us from being loyal subjects of our King. Give us strength to follow in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray.